Well, welcome to Living Hope Church. We're so glad you've joined us this morning. If you have children that are going down to Children's Church, they're kindergarten through third grade, uh, they can dismiss out the back with Miss Amber. Uh, if you have older children that, or children that are staying with us, they are free to grab any activities off that back table. Um, there's also a sermon notes designed for them that goes along with the sermon that they can grab um, and can use throughout the service. So today, uh, if you've been with us, we are once again continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest recorded teaching. It's his first recorded teaching in the Gospels and probably his most famous recorded teaching in the Gospels. And in this sermon, Jesus is addressing some of the religious norms and teachings of his day. And he is trying to draw us, he's speaking to us that are his followers, away. He's trying to draw us from religious hypocrisy into a relationship with God uh, that transforms our hearts. I use this in our, our first sermon in the series, but I love how Daniel Doriani described the Sermon on the Mount. He said that among Jesus' teachings, the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most beloved, it is the best known, it is the least understood, and it is the hardest to obey. And I think that is a spot-on description of what we have been studying these past few weeks. If you've been with us at all, I am quite certain that Jesus' teaching has challenged you. It has challenged your thinking. It has challenged the way you live. Uh, because I know for me, it certainly has done that. And so today we pick up, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. And we're in the midst of this continued teaching on the law. Jesus began by explaining how he came not to get rid of the law or the Old Testament, but he came to fulfill it. And we're going to touch on that again in this sermon. But uh, he came, to, and, and here he's explaining how he came to fulfill the law. And he's giving us these six examples. And these six examples set a precedent of how we understand the Old Testament laws and how we are to obey them with our hearts and not just our religiosity. Thus far, we have seen Jesus use the example of murder, adultery, divorce, and then last week's uh, oaths or our truthfulness. And in each of these, he upheld the Old Testament teaching and he expanded it to our hearts while addressing the false teaching of the Pharisees or the religious leaders of his day. In each instance, and we'll see it again today, the Pharisees, they had created loopholes so that they could avoid following God's commands. They would obey to the letter of the law, but they wouldn't obey in their hearts. Perhaps the easiest example of this was their understanding of murder. They believed that as long as you didn't kill someone, then you could mistreat them all you want. You could be unkind, you could even physically abuse or assault someone as long as you didn't kill them. And they said you were okay by the law. Obviously, Jesus says that's not the intent of the law. Yes, we should not murder, but it is not giving us permission to assault and abuse. So Jesus is challenging our perceptions and challenging the teachings of Pharisees. And he's calling us as his followers to more. He is calling us to heart transformation, not just religious hoops. And today, Jesus is going to take on a challenging one. Today, Jesus is going to call us as his followers, as Christians, to be a people that don't seek revenge but instead to be a people that show grace, mercy, and love to those who have offended and hurt us. Now, I don't know about you, but my initial instinct when I have been wounded is not to show grace and love. But my initial instinct is to get revenge. And revenge is exactly what the Pharisees had been teaching, even commanding their followers to do. But revenge doesn't showcase Jesus to the world. It doesn't shine his light. It doesn't lead people to his grace and mercy and forgiveness. And that is our call as followers. We saw that in verses 13 through 16. We are to be salt and light in this world. We are to show Jesus to the world by the way we live. And there is no better way to show Jesus and, and to shine his light than to repay insult with love, hurt with mercy. So today, once again, it's going to be a challenging teaching as Jesus calls us to more than the ways of the world. So we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 38 and we're going to read through verse 42. This is Jesus speaking. 
He says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people that love those around us and that don't seek revenge. God, that we would be a people that show your grace and your mercy to the world around us. And so, God, I pray that as we unpack this uh, section of Scripture and these four examples, God, that you would provide clarity to us in our understanding, Lord, and that you would help us to not just hear the words or read the words, but to see where you are calling us to apply them to our lives. God, that we might be a people where the world around us sees Jesus by the way we live. So, God, I just pray that you would uh, speak to us uh, this week as we read and study your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So, as we have said, this section of Scripture is one of six examples that Jesus is giving us in order to set a precedent on how we understand and implement the Old Testament. And in each of those, uh, these, Jesus is setting the precedent that God is concerned about our hearts, not just our pseudo-religious actions. And that's our first point for the entire section of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is concerned about our hearts, not our fake religious actions. And so as we seek to understand this particular example, we have to first begin with what is the Old Testament saying and what was it seeking to accomplish? And then we have to understand what were the Pharisees, the religious teachers of Jesus' day teaching and how were they interpreting this law? As we said, in each of the previous four, the Pharisees were misinterpreting the law and teaching loopholes to keep from following the heart of the law. And in this one, we'll see a familiar pattern as they sought revenge as opposed to love and grace. But first, let's look at what the Old Testament said. Jesus is speaking here about what is often referred to as the lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. It's mentioned three times in the Old Testament, Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19-21. And in each of those instances, this law is given as a part of the civil law. These, these are the laws that were instructions to judges and governmental leaders of Israel. These laws were given to govern and were never in, intended to be applied to personal relationships. So why did God even give these laws in the Old Testament? Well, the first thing this law did was it eliminated excessive punishment. A person couldn't be killed for getting in a fist fight with the wrong person. It ensured that excessive punishment wouldn't be delivered. The law was promoting justice and not revenge. Right? We have these laws on our governing civil books as well. You cannot be sentenced to life in prison. You cannot be flogged in America for stealing a candy bar from the loafing jug. Right? Each crime on the book has a maximum sentence that correlates with it. The Eighth Amendment of our Constitution bans cruel and unusual punishment. And so that's what this law was for Israel. The other thing this law did was it set firm consequences for crimes, and in doing so, it restrained evil. Right? You might not care what happens to someone else, but if you were liable to the same degree yourself, you would likely refrain or at least think about it before you committed the crime. So it restrained people from evil actions. And at the same time, it also restrained people from making evil, uh, evil and false accusations. Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 21 says, If someone makes a false accusation, they are held, it will be investigated, and they are held to uh, whatever they accuse that person of. And so the original attempt of this law was that excessive punishment was prohibited. The punishment fit the crime and evil was restrained. And so in other words, it was a good law at that time. So that, that was, the law was given, and that was the intention of the law. 
But we have to remember this was given as a civil law to those governing and leading the nation of Israel. We talked about this two or three weeks ago, but there are three types of laws in the Old Testament. There's the civil law given to the nation of Israel for a specific place and time. Then there is the uh, ceremonial and the moral laws. And the civil laws, the nation of Israel was established as a theocracy, meaning that for the nation of Israel at that time, God was not only their spiritual leader, but he was their governing leader as well. And so the civil laws were given to fulfill the governing function at that time with God as their governing leader. As we might know, we no longer live in a theocracy. God is not our governor, but he is our spiritual leader. Paul tells us this in Romans 13. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Paul says the governing authorities have been established by God, and that's who we are subject to today. We as Christians don't live under a separate set of laws from America, but instead we submit and follow the laws of the land. God is our spiritual authority as Christians. We follow his moral decrees, but we also submit and follow the authority of the governing bodies where we live as long as they don't break God's moral code. And so these Jewish civil laws, they have expired. We no longer follow them. They are not a requirement for our daily life. Instead, they show us principles. We see here that God protects the innocent. He delivers justice, and he is fair. The other two sets of laws are the ceremonial laws and the moral laws. The ceremonial laws dictated the temple and the sacrificial system prior to Jesus. But even the ceremonial laws were fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. He was and he is our substitution. He is our atonement for our sins. So we no longer follow those laws as his followers. And then lastly, there are the moral laws which we still follow and hold to today. The New Testament clearly tells us the ceremonial and civil laws have been fulfilled in Jesus. And they also tell us that God, that Jesus endorses and expounds upon these moral laws. I know that's a lot of recap if you were here three or four weeks ago. But it is important for us to understand this principle as we read the Bible and it's important for us as we walk through this life. And so this statement here, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this command was given as a civil law to the governing body of Israel at that time. And the problem was the Pharisees were teaching it as a moral law. They were teaching it as a command for interpersonal relationships. And so instead of this law providing guidance and limiting excessive punishment by the courts, the Pharisees, the religious teachers, were applying this to the personal relationships of their day. They were allowing and even commanding maximum revenge under the law instead of turning it over to the courts as God has commanded. They were saying that if you came up and punched me, I was obligated to punch you back. If someone slandered me, I was obligated to slander them back. If someone stole from me, I was obligated to steal from them. If someone hurt me, I was obligated to get revenge and hurt them. The Pharisees were teaching that revenge was not only okay, but they were saying it was what to be done. It was obligated by the Bible. And if you read the Bible, you quickly learn that was not the heart of Jesus, and that's not the heart of the Old Testament. God put these laws in place in order to guide the courts and take these issues out of our personal lives. God's word has always been clear that personal revenge is not to be sought. In Deuteronomy 32, 35, God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. God is a God of justice, and we can and always have been able to trust that to him. Paul quotes this again in Romans 12, 19. One of the freeing things about knowing and following God is we can trust vengeance to him. We are not obligated to seek revenge. That's one of the things that frees us to forgive. We can let people go and trust them to God and trust that he is a God of justice. 
So the Pharisees, they were completely missing it. And Jesus is about to correct them and call us to more. The Old Testament taught justice, which is good. But Jesus is going to call us to love, which is even greater. He's going to give us four examples of this. But the overarching point from this four examples, from this section of Scripture, is that Jesus teaches radical love over revenge. All right, our first example comes in verse 39. Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Okay, now when we read this, we must remember the context as well and not apply it to our governments and courts. We can't be the Pharisees where we misinterpret it. This is written to apply to our personal relationships. And that's important because some people have misinterpreted these words to say that we should not resist any evil at all. Leo Tolstoy famously used these words of Jesus to argue that we should get rid of our military, we should get rid of the courts and police force altogether, and we should just let evil play out by itself on its own and leave it in God's hands. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's, again, misinterpreting it and applying it to something it doesn't. Jesus is talking to individuals in their personal relationships. There shouldn't be Christian vigilantes. There shouldn't be us taking the law into our own hands. We're not supposed to get even with others. When someone hurts us, when someone upsets us, when someone offends us, instead of taking revenge, Jesus is calling us to love. And this first example is if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. And this doesn't deal necessarily with physical assault, but instead here he's talking about personal insults. And so our next opportunity to show radical love when we are ins- is when we are insulted. And our next point is when insulted, don't retaliate, but instead love. The backhanded slap was deemed one of the greatest insults in Jesus' day and was even punishable by law. In fact, a backhanded, insulted slap carried twice the fine of an open-handed slap. But Jesus says if someone slaps you across the right cheek, turn to him the also. Turn to him the other also. Now once again, this context of the verse is radical love over revenge. And it's talking about insults. This verse does not prohibit self-defense. It doesn't prohibit you from protecting others from harm. Right? Jesus doesn't say if someone gouges out your right eye, give him your left eye also. Jesus doesn't say if someone is bullying you, uh, let him continue to bully. No, as Christians, we can fight uh, to protect ourselves and others from physical harms. We are to stand up for the oppressed. We see that throughout the Bible. But what we must not do is strike back in anger or revenge. And so Jesus says, turn the other cheek. He says, instead of retaliating when insulted, love the person. And this does two things. One, it doesn't continue to escalate the situation and insults. And two, you are a light in that situation. You are shining for Jesus as you respond differently than the world. When someone insults your character, don't respond immediately with a greater insult. But either let it slide or respond with a loving compliment. When someone gossips about you, don't respond by amping up the situation or responding with more gossip and slander. But instead, go to the person and kindly address it with them with respect. When someone insults you or insults something you love online or on social media, don't reply in that atmosphere, but talk to them in person or over the phone. Or if you don't know them, then don't talk to them at all. Take a few minutes or a few days to calm down from the emotion before you respond. I think this is a huge temptation in our culture One thing I have done to help me is when I am ready to be a keyboard warrior and I'm ready to uh, respond to the overarching nonsense or personal attacks that are out there, I try every time to take 24 hours before I post, text, or send an email in that situation. I'll often show my response to someone I trust before I send it. 
Because my initial text, my initial email, my initial post is almost always emotionally driven and full of revenge. But when I press pause and take time, it allows me to calm the emotions and to respond with more grace and love than I would have initially. Another way I think we can live this out is by not assuming that everything everyone says is a personal insult or attack. When people say stuff in a conversation, I at least often have that temptation to think on it, to stew on it, and to apply it, and to apply to it intention to the comments that very well may have been harmless. And as we stew and think on those things, we begin to build a narrative in our head. But instead of doing that, give people the benefit of the doubt. Love them and assume the best as opposed to the worst. Lastly, perhaps the best thing we can do in these situations is pray. Pray for our hearts and pray for the other person and pray for their heart. I show a lot more grace and love when I am praying for for a person as opposed to when I am focused on myself, my hurt, and my pride. Pray for the person. Often what that person needs more than anything is Jesus in their life. They need to know him, know his love, and know his forgiveness. When we pray, it lifts our eyes from ourselves to the other person and to God. And when we respond with love and grace as opposed to revenge, we have an opportunity to show Jesus to them and to the world. We have the chance to be salt and light, as Jesus talked about in verses 13 through 16. And how can we do this? What is the motivation? I kind of talked about in that intro to Worthy to Worship. But the motivation, the reason for it is because we have a Savior who has modeled this. Jesus experienced every insult imaginable in this life and on the cross. Jesus was called a glutton. He was called a drunk. He was called a madman, a liar. He was called an illegitimate child, and his motives were constantly questioned. At the cross, on the cross, he was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was spat upon, the ultimate insult. I mean, the amount of insult and mockery he endured is hard to understand. It's hard to grasp. And what was his response? He gave his life, and he prayed for the very people that were insulting him. The very people that were mocking him and ultimately the people that were crucifying him. So how can we love those that insult us? We can love those because of a Savior, our Savior, and he is the one we desire to be more like. All right, verse 40. Next example. Jesus says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Ray Fowler summarizes this better than I can. He said, in this example, Jesus moves from unjust actions against your person to unjust actions against your possessions and and those things that are your rights. The tunic, in Jesus' example, was a person's undergarment, uh, while the cloak is an outer garment or a coat. If you have an older translation, it uses those words. Now, by law, you could take someone's tunic. You could take their shirt if you won the lawsuit. But you could not take their outer garment because they needed it as a blanket to sleep at night. That's in Exodus 22, verses 26 through 27. In other words, although you didn't have a right to your tunic, your shirt, it could be taken in the lawsuit, you did have a right to hold on to, to possess your cloak or your coat. And so in this example, Jesus is saying we should be willing to sacrifice even our rights, even our possessions, even our preferences in order to reach out and love other people. And so our next point is this. Out of love, we sacrifice even our rights and preferences for others. Well, again, we'll clarify something real quickly because we can take this too far. Uh, But we live in a lawsuit-happy culture. uh, And so we'll talk about that, and then we'll jump into this point. As everything, we must balance this command with other scriptures. The scripture gives us an obligation to take care of your families and to protect your state. That's in 1 Timothy 5.8. 
And so if someone is suing you or your business and your livelihood is at stake, you can and should use the courts to defend yourself. This is not saying you cannot and should not for any reason be involved in a lawsuit. But even then, you do that out of responsibility for your family, not animosity and revenge for the person that is suing you. The bottom line is the lawsuit and the defense should not be focused on revenge or animosity, but on love and justice. All right, that gets us back to the point. So as followers of Jesus, we should be willing to even sacrifice our rights, our possessions, our preferences for the benefits of others. As Americans, this is a big one because many of us, even in church, hold our rights as is important to the gospel itself. But Jesus says out of love for others, we should be willing to even sacrifice our rights for others. Paul talks about this at length, and he is such a wonderful example of this principle lived out. Time and time again, Paul gave up himself, gave up his rights, gave up his preferences in order to share the gospel and love with others. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19, is probably Paul's uh, uh, most best teaching on this subject. He says, though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Paul says, although he has rights, he has made himself a slave to the needs and preferences and rights of others. Paul is willing to give up what he has, what he deserves, what he has earned in order to love others towards Jesus. Paul says, I don't seek my comfort, my safety above all things, but I please the well-being, the salvation, the eternity of those around me above my personal preferences. And I love that closing of the scripture. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. And so the question we can ask ourselves when we find ourselves in a conversation uh, in person or online is this. Am I living for my rights and my preferences or am I loving and living for Jesus? When I'm talking perhaps in a more emotionally driven conversation with my spouse, am I loving her and showing her Jesus or am I seeking to gain something that I feel like I deserve? Or am I proving that I am right or am I, am I upholding something I desire for me? When I'm talking with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, am I protecting me at all costs or am I loving and showing Jesus? When I'm in an argument on social media with other faceless keyboard warriors, are my posts and my thoughts loving and pointing people to Jesus or are they arguing with someone who is never going to listen to me and someone who needs Jesus way more than they need my political belief system? Friends, we are blonde, blessed to live in America. We give thanks for the rights we have been given. We have a responsibility to defend and protect those rights and hold on to them for the next generation that comes beyond us. But Jesus is calling us to live for more than our rights and our preferences in this world. He's calling us to live for him and to, and, to, and to live to make an eternal impact for him. We can love America. We can love our rights. But we ought to love Jesus more. We ought to make showing his love our first priority. Again, we see that with Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen and afforded more rights than anyone on earth at that time. And he used those rights at times to protect his life and defend his life and to get him to Rome. 
But time and time again, he also laid down those rights in an attempt to love others and point them to Jesus. He laid down those rights to be on equal ground so he could point them to the cross. We are a blessed people, but we must never let our blessings become more important to us than our God who has blessed us so richly. We live in an entitled culture that tells us we deserve everything and we should fight for everything that is ours. That's not the Bible. Jesus calls us to lay down the blessings we have, the rights we think we are owed so that others might know Jesus, so that as many as possible might know him. And that is countercultural, and that will shine. All right, verse 41, third example. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So the Jews in Jesus' day, they were under Roman occupation, and the Roman soldiers could stop you at any time, and they could say, you are going to carry my belongings, and you are going to carry them for a prescribed distance of one mile. For example, the soldiers forced uh, a man named Simeon to carry Jesus' cross in Matthew 27. Now that was bad enough to be forced to do something you didn't want to do, but this was the ultimate offense because you were carrying equipment for the enemy who occupied your land. And the Roman mile was a thousand paces, or about 4,800 feet, just shy of our mile. But Jesus says if someone forced you to go one mile, instead of fighting and fussing and complaining, double the distance and go two miles. Show a radical love that goes beyond what is required. In a sense, they owe you that mile. Since they forced you to go one, you pay it off for them. Go the extra mile so the debt is paid in full and show them love over revenge. That's our next point. Out of love, go the extra mile for others. Again, by God's grace, we are a blessed people and we aren't occupied by the Romans. But there are times in life where we have to do things we don't want to do. Jesus says when that's the case, don't do so pitching a fit and complaining, but do so with a good attitude and go beyond what is required. Right? If you're a child and you're here and your parent asks you to clean up your room, clean it up without complaining. Right? You could stop there and your parents would be thrilled. But if you really want to show them love and, and, uh, and, and go the extra mile, then offer to not only clean your room, but clean your sibling's room or the living room or the kitchen. That kind of response, that kind of love will blow your parents away. As an adult, when you get asked to pick up an extra shift at work, do so without grumbling and do your best at it. Don't just go through the motions. When you get that dreaded jury duty flyer in the mail, right? don't immediately look for any excuse possible, but instead, if you are able to serve, go and serve. When your friend calls and needs some help on a project or something else, don't immediately look for excuses, but go and help them with whatever it is they're doing and go beyond the minimum. When the school needs help, don't just bring snacks or volunteer for your child's class, but go the, going the extra mile would be serving the whole grade or the whole school if you felt led. You could surely come up with your own examples, but when you have the chance to serve and love others, don't do the minimum, but go the extra mile to show Jesus' love to them. And do it not just for your friends, but for any who God brings in your path, even your enemies. Right? The Roman soldier was an enemy to the Jew, and yet Jesus says, serve and love him as well. Right? It's often celebrated in our culture when we go the extra mile for our friends. But not so much when you go so the extra mile for a random person or an enemy uh, that you don't know. Serve all that God brings into your life with this kind of love and grace. All right, lastly, verse 42. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I think for me, this can be the most challenging one of these, because we've all seen people who abuse this kind of generosity, and many of us at times have been burned by this. 
Because of this, it can be really hard for us to know who and when to give to. I love how David Guzik defined this. He said, the limit to how and what we give is love itself. When it is loving to give the person what they ask, then give it. But when it is more loving not to give them what they are asking for and to help them in another way, then do that. For example, my, my youngest son, his name is Theo. He's three years old, and he would have the diet of Buddy the Elf if we allowed it. I mean, that man, that kid can eat candy and cookies nonstop. But when he asks for candy at 6.30 in the morning, when he first wakes up, I tell him no, and instead I go and make him breakfast. It would not be loving for me to indulge his unhealthy habit, but it is loving for me to feed him healthy food. When your friend or family member is struggling with addiction and they ask to borrow money in order to get their next high, it is not loving to loan them 100 bucks because you are contributing to their destruction. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're walking along and a beggar asks them for money. And Peter replies, silver and gold I do not have, but what I give you is this. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. He didn't give the man what he asked for, but he gave him something better. He responded in love and he was able to heal the man. So as we walk through life, we want to be a people who respond with generosity and we respond with love, the love of Jesus. And that's our final application from this section of Scripture. When asked for help, give generously the love of Jesus. When someone asks for help, give the love of Jesus. When, that means, when love means giving sacrificially, then give to the person. Right? We have the opportunity to do that at times the church with the angel tree every winter. We do that as we give to mission and we give to different things in the community. When love means giving, we give. And sometimes this means just trusting the gift to God. We give when God leads us to give, and we trust the results to him. And we are faithful to what God calls us to do, and we leave it in his hands. But when love means giving differently in a different way than they ask, we do that. St. Augustine observed that Jesus does not say, give whatever you are asked, but rather give to whomever asks. We give what love compels us to give. And the one thing we can always give is respect and honor to the person because they are and were created in God's image. And that's kind of a, all four of these examples. They ultimately come down to our attitude. Our natural attitude is to focus on self. It is to focus on revenge. It is to focus on my needs, my preferences, and my rights. But Jesus is calling us to give of ourselves, to prioritize others, to show love and to point to Jesus even when it costs us. And so as we begin to wrap up and, and Emily comes to play, where is God calling you to show radical love as opposed to revenge? Which of these four examples that Jesus gave hits home with you? Is God calling you to turn the other cheek and to treat insult with grace, compassion, and love? Is he calling you to show grace and mercy instead of judgment and revenge? In James 2.13, James writes, mercy triumphs over judgment. There's perhaps no greater opportunity to show God's love as this, when we extend grace and forgiveness as opposed to mercy and judgment. Maybe God's calling you to sacrifice of yourself and your preferences in order to love someone and show them the love of Jesus. Maybe he's calling you to go the extra mile and show love to someone even when you don't have to. Maybe he's calling you to extend extravagant grace or love that goes beyond what is required. We as Christians should be doing this and loving more than the world. We see this in all four of Jesus' examples, turning the other cheek, giving your coat as well, going the second mile, giving and lending freely, even if the person has hurt you in some way. 
We're called to practice what G. Campbell Morgan called undeserved and unnecessary generosity. We are called to go beyond what is required. And you can trust that God with the results because God is good, God is just, and he will see that justice is done. That is his job. As Christians, we are called to love over revenge every single time. So I'm going to pray for us. As I pray, I would um, ask you just to bow your head. Emily's going to play after that for just a minute or two. And I'd ask you to bow your head and just to pray and ask God where he is calling you to show love as opposed to revenge. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you call us to more, Lord. And we thank you that you call us to forgiveness and grace because that is exactly what you have shown us. God, we are able and we are, are called to show love, to forgive others because you have loved us and forgave us when we were guilty in our sin. And so God, I pray that as we reflect, Lord, that you would speak to us and you would show us specific opportunities we have to show your love this week. God, I pray that we would go and show that love uh, as we leave today. And Lord, I also pray that you would speak to our hearts and that you would remind us of the grace and forgiveness that you have shown us. And God, I pray that it would be out of that grace and forgiveness that we would be motivated to show that to others as well. And then, Lord, ultimately, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, if they've never experienced your grace and forgiveness, God, I pray that even in the midst of this message, which was directed toward believers, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would show them their need for love and forgiveness. And, God, that they would repent and that they would turn and follow you and experience your grace, your love, and your forgiveness for the first time. God, we thank you that you love us, Lord. We thank you that you care for us, Lord. We thank you that you care about our lives and the way we live. God, we thank you that you use us to shine your light to the world around us. So, God, I pray that you would just speak to us in these next couple of moments. Um, God, and I pray it's in your name. Amen. God, we just thank you for you are. Lord, we thank you that you love us and you care for us. And God, I pray that we would, as we go out this week, Lord, that we would display your love and your grace and your forgiveness to the world around you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, just a couple of announcements before we go. Uh, first of all, if you're new to Living Hope Church, there should be a welcome card somewhere in the area of you. If you don't mind filling that out and placing a box on the back table, we'd appreciate it. Um, this also you can place your tithes and offerings if you consider this your church home. Uh, in terms of announcements, we have a small group Bible study, which meets tonight here at Sunday nights from 6 to 7 at the church. Uh, if you have questions about that, you can come and see me, and I'd be happy to answer those. Uh, we have youth group and kids night, which meets here in the church at the church from 6 to 7 on Wednesday nights. If you have questions about youth group, you can talk to Mr. Justin or Ms. Emily. Uh, if you have questions about kids night, you can come see me, and I'll point you to someone that has the answers. Um, so thank you so much for being here today. We pray you have a wonderful week, and we hope to see you again next week. You are dismissed.